Insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcasts. Top Med Talk. Well, hello and welcome to Top Med Talk. We are at Euro Anesthesia 2022 in beautiful Milano, Italy, coming to you live from this very busy trade exhibition. I'm Desiree Chapel, and I'm joined by Monty Mythen, my co-host. Hello, Monty. Good morning, Desiree. It's it good to be here. It is good to be here. Day two. Day two of the wonderful European Society of Anesthesia Intensive Care annual meeting. That's right. Uh, lots of buzz. You can it's, hear it in the background. It's, it's very noisy in here. <laughs> it's very noisy I hope it's here. not coming through to everyone listening on the podcast end of things, but we're backing against the noise. We are. Uh, Monty, it is wonderful to be in person, seeing all of our friends from around the world. We're waving to everybody right now <laughs> as they go around the room. Um, so that's uh, that's super exciting. Anything uh, new that you've heard in the last couple of days? Oh, I think we're going to get to that in a second. Went to an absolutely wonderful session led by one of our guests yesterday afternoon. Yeah. And I think we're going to talk about that and then follow on with some conversations that related to some of the launch things we heard about on the GE Healthcare stand that we're, we're sitting on at the moment. That's right. We wanted to thank them for um, having us this year on their booth at, e- at uh, the Euro Anesthesia 2022. Well, let's get right into it. We wanted to introduce our first guest, Dr. Dan Sessing from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good morning. It's thank, a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Dan, for everyone listening, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I, I chair the Department of Outcomes Research at the Cleveland Clinic. I also direct the Outcomes Research Consortium. The consortium is the oldest and largest clinical anesthesia research group. Uh, we're quite productive. We publish a full paper every two and a half days. Oh, I was going to say, I, I thought there was a lot coming out of that. I didn't realize that's how busy you are. Yeah. Well, the consortium has published more than 1,600 full papers. Wow. Wow, that's to put that in perspective, that's equivalent to every paper in every issue of a journal like Anesthesiology for 12 years running. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, congratulations to uh, you guys and the team there. That's, that's very impressive, actually. Um, Dan, you've been very busy personally with them, some research that you've been involved with over the years. Tell us just a little bit more about some of your research interests. Okay. Uh, Our primary interest is perioperative outcomes, Mm -hmm. and particularly perioperative mortality. And by perioperative mortality, I mean postoperative mortality, because Mm -hmm. intraoperative mortality is now so rare that it's hard to quantify. On the other hand, we lose a lot of patients postoperatively. About 2% of inpatients over the age of 45 die within a month after surgery. And again, to provide some perspective around this, if the 30 days after surgery were considered a disease, it would be the third leading cause of death in the United States. We lose a lot of patients after surgery. Reasonable question, of course, is what's killing them? Yeah. And the answer turns out to be uncontrolled surgical bleeding that we probably can't do that much about and myocardial injury that possibly we can Interesting. And so we've been very interested in myocardial injury, and one of the uh, factors that's associated with myocardial injury, the only modifiable factor, is blood pressure. And there are strong associations between hypotension and myocardial injury, so, so we've been quite interested in that. 
Yeah. So, so Dan, I went to your, as many of us at the table did yesterday, to your wonderful session, which I think was an inaugural session at the ESA that's going to be an annual event. Could you expand on that briefly, and then we'll just go into a little bit of the content? With pleasure. The, the <laughs> consortium has always had a session at the ASA meeting, and until a few years ago, it was a private session. So it was ASA yeah, sponsored. They gave us a room, but it was a private session. And then a few years ago, we made it public, so it's now a regular ASA session. For the first time this year, we have an outcomes research consortium late-breaking session at the ESA. And so that started yesterday. We had five presentations about four major thousand-patient-plus trials. So, Dan, within that, uh, we heard results about tidal volume and PEEP, which is uh, running and running, and it's possible association with ventilator-induced lung injury. We heard about warming, and I want to ask you about that very briefly before we get on to the final bit, which was the tranexamic acid and the blood pressure trials. Yeah. I expand on the, the warming one for a second for us. Uh, with pleasure. So this is the PROTECT trial. Uh, PROTECT tested the hypothesis that very aggressive intraoperative warming would reduce a composite of myocardial complications. The secondary outcomes were surgical site infection and transfusion requirement. Patients were randomized to a target temperature of 35.5 degrees or 37 degrees during surgery, and we had very good compliance. The actual temperatures were 35.6 degrees and 37.1 degrees. So the exposure was beautifully controlled. 5,056 patients were randomized. We had more than 99% 30-day follow-up, wow. and, and the results were clear. There was absolutely no effect on cardiovascular outcomes, surgical site infection, or transfusion requirement. And, and we, it was brought up in the session yesterday, you spoke to it very well. We have a bad tendency to call those negative trials. In other words, the implication is somehow it was a, a waste of effort or a dumb idea. Because it was actually, it's a very important result. It, it is. And I actually wrote an editorial about this for anesthesiology, uh, saying don't call them negative. Uh, so it's, it's not a good term. So neutral or robustly equivocal, something like that is, is a better outcome. And this is a good example. The relative risk for complications was essentially one. The confidence centers were, were really tight. This was not an underpowered trial. This was robustly uh, neutral outcome, so we can rely on these results. You know, it's great news, actually, I, with many of the hospitals that we work with, I'm with North Star Anesthesia, and one of the biggest conversations and the most time that people spend in the OR talking about is hypothermia. And temperature management, and so I'm well, I'm so excited that we have you know a little bit more data and some answers. Okay, now this doesn't mean that hypothermia doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you don't need to monitor the temperature. For sure. And it doesn't mean that you don't need to warn patients. What it means is that the harm threshold is no higher than 35.5 degrees. Yeah. So the 36 degrees that's used in lots and lots of standards, which was literally pulled out of the air, is, is just wrong. No, okay. that's it's, what I'm saying. That's why I'm so, <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so I'm going to move us on to poise three, 
okay. the third in the Poise series. And this was a factorial, a large trial, multi-centre international trial, factorial design. And the first paper, I think, is already published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dan. Correct. Can, can you tell us about the factorial design? There's a yes. lot to squeeze in. Because then we'll talk about the, the first result, the tranexamic acid. Then we'll talk about blood pressure. Okay. Uh, factorial designs are, are one of the uh, trial innovations that's uh, being increasingly used, and for good reason. Because with a factorial design, you can answer two or more questions simultaneously. So that, that's obviously very efficient. But it's actually even better than it sounds. Because if you do two independent trials, you can't tell what happens if you combine an intervention. With a factorial design, you can look at the interaction time term and tell whether these interventions interact additively, whether they antagonize each other, or whether they might be synergistic. So factorial designs are really powerful. Poise 3 had two factors. One was tranexamic acid, and the second was blood pressure control. So patients were randomized to tranexamic acid or placebo and to hypotension prevention or hypertension prevention. Now, I'll bring you back to that in a second. We're going to concentrate on the rest of the podcast about blood pressure. But the, the takeaway from the tranexamic acid trial results, so big trial, about nine yeah. and a half thousand patients, Correct. 100 plus countries, uh, no, 20 plus countries, is it? All it's 120 yeah. centers in about 20 countries, so 9,500 patients enrolled. So a huge effort. Well, what's the takeaway from the tranexamic acid trial? Tranexamic acid works. And, and that's not super surprising because many previous small trials have shown this. But this is uh, by far the largest, by an order of magnitude or something like that. Uh, it shows clearly that tranexamic acid reduces bleeding, it reduces transfusion requirements, and importantly, it shows that it does not increase cardiovascular events because the cardiovascular events after surgery are type 2 infarctions. They're supply-demand mismatch, and coronary thrombus is probably one mm -hmm. of the factors. Mm -hmm. So it is quite possible that tranexamic acid, while reducing transfusion requirements, would promote cardiovascular events. It turns out that's not true. With a fair degree of confidence, we can say that doesn't happen. Now, some yeah. people might walk away and say, well, it made some difference to bleeding, but it didn't make an obvious difference to you know what we refer to as outcomes, you know, very meaningful long-term outcomes. But the thing that was uh, brought up in the presentation is there's a blood shortage. So the amount of blood that could be saved that didn't need to be transfused makes a huge difference. Well, there's not enough blood in the world. So people who need transfusions don't always get them. That's not so true in Western countries, but in many countries, uh, people simply don't get the blood they need. Tranexamic acid is generic. It's been around forever. It's dirt cheap. Uh, it appears to be incredibly safe. There's no reason not to use it. Another thing that came out of this is that it wasn't just uh, big operations at high risk for bleeding. It helped across the entire spectrum of operations. So even though surgeons say, oh, I'm not going to have bleeding in this operation, which they say for every operation, okay, you still should give them tranexamic acid because some of them will actually have major bleeding. And if you have the tranexamic acid on board, it prevents a catastrophe. 
So it wasn't just transfusions. Uh, it also reduced major life-threatening bleeding-related events. Brilliant. So that's out there. People can read it in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, the second component of it, which is what we're going to talk about for the rest of this podcast, is the blood pressure story. And this was a more complicated thing to try and assimilate in a short presentation. Can you give it your your best shot, elevator pitch? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, this was a a partial factorial randomized trial. So, not everybody who qualified for the tranexamic acid part qualified for the blood pressure part of the study. To be in the blood pressure part of the study, patients had to be taking antihypertensive medications. So the result was that we had only, as it were, 7,500 patients. Now, 7,500 patients, of course, is still a huge trial, and the results are are highly, highly uh, clear. Uh, Patients were randomized to hypotension prevention, which meant keeping intraoperative mean arterial pressure above 80 millimeters of mercury and delaying the restart of their chronic antihypertensive medications for three days. Patients randomized to hypertension prevention uh, were allowed to become hypotensive to uh, as low as 65 millimeters of mercury during surgery, but some got lower than that. Uh, and their antihypertensive medications were restarted immediately after surgery. So intraoperative blood pressures ended up differing. There, there was about a 30-minute difference in the amount of hypotension between 60 and 69 millimeters of mercury. An unfortunate limitation of the trial is that we don't know what happened within that range. So it's possible that most of that hypotension was well above 65, and not that many patients were down around 60. Starting or restarting antihypertensive medications seems to have almost no effect on postoperative blood pressure. And, and that's important because myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, as far as we can tell, does not occur intraoperatively. It occurs postoperatively. 94% of these events would occur within two days after surgery, but probably not actually during surgery. So that's what I want to take us for the for the last section of this, and we'll introduce another guest in a second. Is are we calling all these trials negative? If you see what I mean, is it is it just that we might just be looking in the wrong place? We're looking okay. under the, the, the we're looking under the lamp. We're not looking where we drop the keys. Right. Okay. So I need to give you the results. The, okay. the results were that it didn't make any difference. Okay. <laughs> Whether you were randomised to. Hypertension avoidance or hypertension I was taking that as a given at this stage. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, No, it did not make any difference. Uh, That doesn't, of course, mean that blood pressure doesn't matter uh, because there was almost no hypotension below 60 millimeters of mercury. Without question, hypotension at some level injures organs. We just don't know what the threshold is. And a limitation of course three is that it doesn't really tell us where the threshold is. Um, it's somewhere between 60 and, and 69, perhaps. Might be a little bit lower than 60. But personally, I would not leave a patient sitting at 60 millimeters of mercury for the whole case. The, the bulk of available evidence, granted some 
lots of it's observational, is that that's probably harmful. So Quartz 3 helps, but it doesn't tell us exactly what the threshold is. There is another trial called Guardian that's already started that will randomize 6,250 patients. These will be higher risk patients. All the patients will require an arterial catheter. The blood pressure control will be a lot tighter and we will have near continuous blood pressures in these patients. So we'll be able to identify a threshold. And what do you aim for that? Because the higher threshold group, the one that we thought was going to try and achieve an 80, for example, did not look as though many patients got to the 80. Will that be more so in the Guardian trial? In, in Guardian, the uh, higher threshold will be 85 millimeters of mercury. And in the lower group, based on the points three results, we're actually hoping that we have blood pressures in the 60 to 65 range because I suspect that the threshold is in that range. So, Desiree, we have another guest. We're we do. Post-op. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, so switching gears a little bit, you know, for what you were talking about, Dan, that we're seeing a lot more happen in the post-op, you know, phase of the surgical continuum. That's why I wanted to bring our next guest in, Frederick Michard, from Lucerne, Switzerland. Say it right. I never say that right, do I? What? <laughs> Lausanne. Ah, Lausanne. Yeah, Lausanne, okay. Switzerland. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Don't worry. Frederick, you are a, a guest of, of Top Med Talk before. Thank you so much for joining us again. Always a pleasure, Desiree. Yeah. Monty. I think last time we discussed was years ago, before the COVID, right? It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually at ESA uh, 2019, yeah, right. whenever we were in you're Vienna. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just before the COVID. Just yeah. before COVID. So, Frederick, this is a space that you've been involved uh, in a lot with post-op monitoring and care and, and leaning in with enhanced recovery and things like that. Um, what is your take on, on uh, some of the stuff we've been talking about today? I mean, uh, I obviously fully agree with Dan uh, when he said, uh, I think the very first thing you said is that we need now to focus on post-operative management because this is when patients develop complications. I mean, anesthesiologists dramatically improved uh, what's done during surgery. And as you said very well, Dan, and I very often quote one of your editorials, uh, post-operative mortality is 1,000 times higher than intraoperative mortality. So obviously, uh, everybody can understand that if we want to now move the needle, further improve patient safety, I think we need to find solution for the post-operative period. It's kind of obvious. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that is one thing that I feel like we've been doing things the same way for a very long time and, and not seeing a lot of difference. Where are we headed? What direction are we headed when it comes to post-op monitoring and, and doing things better? So we, we actually did a survey recently, or last year we did a survey, but it was published recently, the, the new uh, open version of the British Journal of Anesthesia. It's a survey we did in Europe and in the US. Uh, we had uh, 40 uh, academic centers uh, who participated. And so from that survey, we learned, first of all, that today current practice is spot check, you know, vital sign spot check by nurses. On average, every four to six hours in the US, every eight to 12 hours uh, in Europe. And so that's how we do it. And so as you know, as soon as patients leave the step down unit or actually the OR, and then they go to the surgical wards, where usually surgeons are not there because they are logically in the operating room, and, and they are... Uh, very few nurses as compared to the nurse-patient ratio we, we benefit from in, in the step-down unit or in the ACU. And that, that's, that's if we're, we're honest about that, that's shocking, isn't it? 
it's, shocking. Uh, I would not say it's shocking, but obviously you know, that's where we can improve. I'm not shocked because okay. you know I am a French well, not, guy. So if you, <laughs> if you have in mind the healthcare system in France, I'm not sure. It's at least it's not anymore an example. But yeah. but uh, but clearly there is there is a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, Dan, did you want to have a comment? We we monitor patients after surgery the way we did 50 years ago. This technique dates back half, half a century. But half a century ago, patients were admitted two days before surgery. We didn't operate on anybody over 60. We didn't do big operations. Patients stayed in the hospital for two weeks after surgery. The average acuity in hospitals 50 years ago was relatively low. Now, most patients go home. You have to be four plus sick. You get admitted the morning of surgery and kicked out two days later. The acuity is just really high, but we still monitor them the same way we did 50 years ago. That's inappropriate. These patients should be treated like ICU patients because they're four plus sick. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we learn as well from that survey yes. is that there is a big uh, contrast between what's done and uh, what uh, anesthesiologists are expecting. And clearly, I mean, in that survey, if I remember well, 91% of them believe that continuous monitoring should now be offered to patients. I believe that remote wireless monitoring should be uh, available simply because we all know from uh, ERAS guys and programs that early mobilization is a key element uh, for fast uh, recovery. So, so there is almost a consensus uh, regarding the fact that we need to start using these new technologies uh, to uh, upgrade the way we monitor patients in the world and ultimately possibly improve outcome. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about some of the issues that we see post-operatively, and then what are some of the solutions that are coming out? So we talked about hypo, you know, hypotension, hypertension, issues with blood pressure, hemodynamic instability is one. Respiratory issues as well are a problem, right? Re respiratory issues are, are important because they're preventable. Yes. I mean, nobody should die in a hospital from respiratory failure because we can treat respiratory failure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not by far the most common cause of death. No. Cardiovascular events are, are 10 or 100 times as common as respiratory events. It's just that the respiratory events are completely preventable, so there, there's no excuse for them. Yeah. Uh, so we need to monitor patients in the hospital a lot better than we do now. Effectively, we need continuous monitoring. Uh, we've, we've shown twice now that intraoperatively, if you have continuous monitoring, you detect twice as much hypotension yeah, yeah. as if you measure every five minutes. Okay, well, imagine if you're measuring every four, six, or eight hours how much you're going to miss. Well, we've actually studied that. Yeah. You, you miss a, a lot of it. Nurses miss 90% of serious hypoxemic episodes. That, that is, saturations less than 90 for an hour continuously. They're, they're missed. Now, it's not that the nurses are doing anything wrong. This is not a criticism of nursing. This is part of the system. If you have nurses only wander by every four hours, as in our studies, and remember in many hospitals it's less, of course they're going to miss events that happen within the four hours. The only way to solve it is continuous monitoring. Of course, I agree with then that opioid-induced respiratory depression is not acceptable because it's 100% preventable. On the other hand, it's, it's definitely not the most common respiratory complication. Uh, there is a very nice study by the group of uh, Dan Edelson published a few years ago in critical care medicine looking at triggers for rapid response team activations. Yeah. And then you realize that it's more or less 25, 25, 25, 25% for a high heart rate, a low SpO2, 
a higher respiratory rate or a low blood pressure. These are the main triggers for rapid response team activation. So if you focus on respiratory rate, for instance, it's much more often a rise in respiratory rate that will be an issue. It could be related to pneumonia, it could be related uh, to uh, pulmonary embolism. You know, it's, it's not only opioid-induced respiratory depression. I understand we often focus on that because once again, it's 100% preventable, so not acceptable but it's definitely not the most common issue uh, from a respiratory standpoint. I'm so glad that you bring that up because it's very true and we do get focused on the, you know, the opioid depression, um, but there's a lot of other things going on. It's really, it's really so easy to miss. We don't do the monitoring, but some of the monitoring technology that we have out on the floors, it's not great. If, if someone has a continuous pulse ox, you know, all they have to do is mess with their hair and you know, move around a little bit and it's, you know, you get alarm fatigue because it just keeps going off and you miss a lot of things that way. What are some of the technologies coming down the pike that is a little bit more um, user-friendly? So, yes, I mean, it's, it's a good point. Uh, over the last five years, I would say many companies uh, developed uh, new solutions for monitoring patients on the world. As I said already, they are wireless. Uh, but as you mentioned, they also have uh, new software are able to filter, if not all, at least most artifacts, because yeah. once again we are interested in monitoring ambulatory patients now, so you can imagine the level yeah. of artifacts we have. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, you know, I think that's the top four. Uh, in a perfect world, we should be able to monitor SpO2, heart rate, and by the way, that's what we do with a pulse oximeter. It's yeah. not heart rate, it's pulse rate, but as you know, it's very close. Uh, we have tools to monitor respiratory rate. Uh, we have wireless tools now available. And, and the last one is blood pressure, and maybe Dan want to, to say something about that, because uh, I think blood pressure monitoring is also very important, or would be very important on, in the post-operative period, but today it remains something very challenging to, to measure and to monitor accurately. Uh, Frederick, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Blood pressure is the single most important thing post-operatively, and it's the most difficult to measure. As you note, all of these measurements have a high degree of artifact associated with them. And we can't just start doing all this monitoring, generate gigabytes of data per patient, stream it to the nurses and say, it's your problem. It's not, that's not fair to the nurses. So this information is going to have to go into some artificial intelligence engine that screens out a lot of artifact, things that don't make sense and identifies patients who look as if they're getting into trouble. And even then, I wouldn't send that directly to the nurses. I would probably stream that patient's information to a bunker with 20 screens, have somebody, uh, preferably an anesthesiologist, looking at that, can pull electronic records, and then identify a patient's really getting into trouble and make the call to the ward. George, check bed four now. It's really, go ahead, Monty. I was going to say, it's, um, you know, perfection is the enemy of progress. We're seeking perfection in the monitoring, mm -hmm. but there has been enormous progress. I think there are viable solutions today. Is that right, Frederick? There, there's a range of viable yes. things to at least start with. Yes, mm -hmm. and I know, Dan, you had the opportunity to use some of them at the Cleveland Clinic already. You even published with, uh, when you mentioned this study where you, you realize that nurses were missing even in your very uh, high-level and prestigious institution, I think there were nurses who were missing 
around 80% of uh, hypertensive events and uh, also 80% of hypoxemic events. So it's, it's obviously... It's, it's about 50% of hypotension and about 90% of hypoxemia. Yeah. But that depends critically on how you define the depth and duration. Mm. You, you get completely different answers. But the, the point is not the number. The point is that lots are missed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and so so I, I understand the enthusiasm of Dan for blood pressure, of course, because this is one of your main uh, research topic. But I'm not sure, I'm not yet convinced this is the most important variable to monitor during the post-operative phase. I'm pretty convinced it's one of the top four. And today, if I had to rank uh, these variables, probably a respiratory rate would come first, because we know from many studies this is a very often the most sensitive marker of clinical deterioration, particularly when we look at... Uh, modern software, so machine learning algorithm, mm -hmm. and, and we look at the determinants within this algorithm, which, which weight uh, each variable has uh, in you know, detecting uh, clinical deterioration. Respiratory rate is always ranked number one. And honestly, as a clinician, I think it makes sense because we know it's not only abnormal when patients develop respiratory complications, but also when you have metabolic acidosis, mm -hmm. when you have shock, when you have pain. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are many different clinical situations where actually your respiratory rate is going to rise. And so that's why it is possibly the most sensitive. Of course, not the most specific, definitely right. not. Yeah. But that's yeah. the most sensitive. So I would be very careful today before ranking, you know, the, the vital signs. I think once again, in a perfect world, we should be able to monitor all these top four. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, ranking it is not the important goal here uh, because all, all these things matter. Yeah. If everything you know about a patient helps. Consider location. So you have accelerometer that can identify position if you know the location. Okay, a patient who's lying flat in bed is probably fine. Patients lying flat in the bathroom probably isn't. So interesting, putting yeah. this all together and interpreting them in context is what's going to really help. So we're all clinicians at the table here. We've taken care of patients. We know that there's a problem. What What is the issue? What is the barrier to adoption of things that we know we can use to do it better? Frederick, I want to go with you first. So I think, first of all, until recently, many of these technologies were not available. Mm -hmm. uh, second, um, as we already mentioned, it's you need a sensor or maybe two sensors, depending on what you want to monitor. We need software. We already discussed a little bit about smart software to filter artifacts, but also to give, uh, to digest, I would say, the information for nurses. Because the goal is not, we should not forget about the nurse-to-patient ratio on regular oh, wards. So yeah. we cannot, you know, give too much information uh, too often. Mm -hmm. So we need also the development of smart software, giving kind of visual information like, you know, it's green or yellow or red. And as Dan said, when it's red, you need to run to the room. When it's yellow, maybe you need to have a look quickly and inform the world physician and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a sensor. It's an algorithm, a smart algorithm. And these algorithms were not available five years ago. And in addition, and we often forget that, it's a connectivity protocol. Because we start to realize there are very interesting recent studies showing that if you rely on the classic Bluetooth connectivity protocol, yes. we all know there are very often disruptions. Yeah. You know, when you are listening to music with yeah. your uh, wireless <laughs> headphone, it's not a big deal because it has nothing to do with patient safety. But if tomorrow we decide to offer continuous monitoring on the world, we need to be sure it's going to be reliable. Meaning that if there is no alarm, clearly it means the patient is going well, yeah. not the, that now the patient is disconnected. <laughs> right. So the third uh, 
piece of the puzzle is also a medical grade, what I would define as medical grade connectivity protocols. Mm. And so far, very companies, I think, have been able to develop this uh, this piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Dan, what are your thoughts on this? How do we get widespread adoption of better monitoring after surgery? Okay. Well, first we need better monitors. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're being developed. Lots of companies are, are working on these monitors. The blood pressure is a challenge for, for is, almost yeah. all of them. So we need better monitors. And these are, are extremely complicated devices, and they, they need to communicate. They need to have a good battery life. Uh, they need to be reliable. Then we need the software to interpret it. I, I really believe it's unfair to just dump this onto a screen in, in a nursing office. That, that's, it's not fair, nor will it work. Uh, the critical events will be missed. Um, so we need the appropriate software, and both of those are challenging. We don't have either yet. Monty, any comments on that? I think it's... Uh, so now we do have, I think, some viable solutions that mm -hmm. are ready for evaluation in greater numbers. Mm -hmm. The challenge we're all again, then going to face in our institutions is the cost-value discussion. Right. Yeah. And right at the moment, we've got that very difficult situation where we're recognizing that we don't have enough staff, we don't have enough seniority of staff, and we then look at the number of the acquisition of this at scale, and we say, oh, that's a big number. So we've got to get over that. We've got to yeah. somehow face up to the reality of it. Mm -hmm. and start to make those bold decisions and evaluate the technologies that are there at the moment. And they will improve rapidly if we start to evaluate them and embrace the opportunity. So then this part of it. Yeah. Continuous ward monitoring will be the standard of care, mm -hmm. and it will be a lot sooner than people think. Within five to ten years, it will just be required in hospitals. At the time will come when a patient walks into the hospital, Something is strapped to the wrist, some electrodes stuck on, and it stays with them through the entire hospitalization, and maybe after they go home as well. Yeah. Frederick, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, today we can monitor so much from home. I mean, <laughs> right? some of you have You're a smartwatch. <laughs> Not even Apple. I mean, they I mean, are many different. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, you can monitor your heart rate. Yeah, you can detect sure. FEB. You can... Uh, <laughs> I don't wear it now, but I have a small bracelet from a Swiss startup. I'm not going to name, but yeah, uh, I was to say no product. It's, it's an optical <laughs> system to measure your blood pressure every two hours. Ah. So even when you sleep, you get your measurements. Yeah. Uh, I heard that uh, probably very soon watches will be able to give blood glucose values to diabetic patients. So it's happening, uh, yeah. and and it would be such a paradox if when you are admitted to the hospital, of course not in the ICU, but to a regular ward, then suddenly. You, we Stop. lose all this continuous information <laughs> and we go back to what we were doing 50 years ago, yeah. like a spot check from time to time, if the nurse is not too busy. Yeah. So that's why, like, like uh, Dan, I'm, I'm convinced it's going to happen anyway. It's not going to be easy because it's a, it's a very big change for surgical departments, for regular wards. Yeah. Uh, we'll have some pushback, but I think it's going to happen anyway. Yeah, fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today on Top Med Talk here at Euro Anesthesia 2022. Dan, congratulations on Poise 3 and the, all the, the good work that you've been doing through your outcomes research group there. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and Frederick, tell us a little bit more. I didn't I didn't go into this. You're in uh, your Miko Consulting, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm leading a consulting and research company based in Switzerland. And so um, I'm still in research, you know, yeah. not myself, but uh, working with uh, with different people. 
for, for example, at the moment we work a lot on AI uh, with echocardiography. Uh, you know how AI could help clinicians to uh, easily measure uh, echo variables, yeah. and uh, you will see a few papers uh, pretty soon, hopefully. Yeah, and how would people find you if uh, they wanted to reach out? Oh, they can check my website, uh, michaconsulting.com. Thank you, you very much. Lisa. Yes, absolutely. All right. Thanks to everyone for listening to Top Med Talk. You know, you can always find us at topmedtalk.com. We are on your favorite social media platform: Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. We are there. And we're going to have some fabulous conversations the rest of the time here at uh, the Euro Anesthesia 2022. Monty, some good stuff coming up. Some great stuff coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit more about blood pressure, yeah. looking at it from a couple of other different angles. But, you know, yeah. we'll be, we're yeah. looking forward to a lot more conversation. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Cheers. Thank you very much. Top Med Talk. Desiree Chapel with Top Med Talk. It has been an exciting year, and there is so much more to come. Now, I'm joined here with Monty Mythen. Monty, what is coming up? Well, next, Top Med Talk, we're going to be coming to you live from the European Society of Anesthesiology from Milan in Italy. You'll find us on the GE booth in the trade exhibition. We'll be there intermittently, and we'll probably pop up in a few other places. So I'm there with Desiree, and Sol Aronson's coming in, and Henry Howe. And after that, Desiree, where do we go? It is time for the 25th anniversary World Congress of Perioperative Medicine in London, right? Live. From the UCL campus to celebrate our 25th anniversary. So that's really exciting. And then I think we've got the next one in August with your organization in America. It is. It's in Chicago. It's the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Monty and I are going to pop up there, have some great conversations, and then it's on to... Dingle. So that takes us into the autumn and winter season. More about that to follow. And then, of course, we're going to be rounding out the year with the American Society of Anesthesiologists in New Orleans for their annual Congress. So super excited about all the events for the year. Don't miss us. Be sure to check us out on topmedtalk.com and on your favorite podcatcher. We are there with late-breaking anesthesia and perioperative news. Right, Monty? Absolutely. See you soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com.